1974, Eastern philosophy was all the rage in America. The boomers were getting older, questioning American values and looking everywhere for answers. 123 publishers rejected Robert Persig's novel Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, a rambling road trip narrative that chronicled the author's own struggles with the questions of existence and his own mental illness. One publisher took a chance, and the best-selling philosophy book of all time was born. The novel scratched an itch in the American mind of the 1970s. We wanted to see if it could still pack the same intellectual punch almost 50 years later. So, pour yourself a split personality cocktail and join us as we put it to the test. It's time for episode 28 of Toasting the Classics, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Welcome back to another episode of Toasting the Classics. I am Clint Lanier. Dave MacArthur. This is the show where we pick a creative subject. Aha, you like that? A, a work of art. That's right. Work of art, movie, poet, uh, poem, rather, book. One with, one with purported status to classic. Yeah. Other people, not nearly as knowledgeable as us, <clears throat> have picked these things and said, this is a classic. Held them up to all history. And we thought, you know, are they really? In in this uh, show. Originally, I intended to always yeah. have like some credibility to why it's a classic. Yeah. But like, for instance, this week's book, I didn't, we didn't get it from any list. You were just like, it's a book I've heard of. Yeah, it's a book you know, I've so. heard of, right? So, uh, yeah. So we're taking one of those things and we are dissecting it and invading it mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, breaking it down, deconstructing it, if you will. And right. uh, then we will decide whether it's a classic or not. Right. We will decide whether to toast it. And, uh, and that brings us to the other part where we have a bit of booze. That makes it hey, something related. Second, the second half is always better once we busted into the booze a little bit, especially after four loco. Yeah, I think we should start doing back to back episodes more often. <laughs> by the way, four loco is banned. No more four loco. No more four loco. That is the first yeah. time since we've been doing this show that I have woken up the next morning. I've been like, yeah, I don't want to get out I was, of bed. I was a I bit was, fuzzy I felt the next terrible. day. That stuff is, is pretty and I, terrible. And, and I had one can. Yeah, so one yeah, can right. of that stuff. I and mean, it to felt be terrible. fair, to be fair, I think it's like a twenty-four ounce can, though. It's a twenty-ounce so. can, yeah, but <laughs> right. still, yeah, but still, no, thank you. So uh, this week we are doing uh -huh. uh, my pick, and it is Robert Persig's Robert Persig, uh, nineteen seventy-four. Do you ever come across Classic. somebody's last name every once in a while and you're just like, that's your real last name? <laughs> it's not Persig. just like a random Persig. collection of letters. Like Persig. Persig. Uh, Persig. Persig. Yeah, his, I, uh, I think it's 74, right? 74, 74 Classic. 74 is what I have, yeah. Uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Right. Where do we start? I don't know. Let's just dive right in and talk sure. about it. So I actually read this book years and years ago okay. and it didn't leave a whole lot of substantive impression on mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. But as I read the first half of the book, I was like, this book was a big influence on yeah. me. It just became kind of part of the way I thought. Because uh, I read it when mm -hmm. I was like, I think in late high school, yeah. like 16, 17 years old, something like that. And a lot of things that I've been fascinated with ever since kind of came out of, right. like, I got this idea of what the West was like and stuff like that. You, um, you keep, keep talking. I'm going to okay. pour us drinks. I'll talk about oh, the we're going to dive later. right into the drink. Yeah, okay. I need a drink. I also read the book Zen and the Art of Archery that this book is sort of patterned on, that the mm -hmm. title is patterned on and that the idea of finding Zen in, in a mundane activity, well, archery, I guess, is not a mundane activity, but, you know, it's something where you can lose yourself in the practice of an activity, right. um, which is a very Zen concept. How much Zen do you think gets discussed in this book? Is it I, just me or is it only expressly mentioned like maybe twice? Well, it depends on how you define it. Okay. okay. Zen, I think for him, is defined by doing, right? Zen is what Eminem talked about, losing yourself in the <laughs> moment. You own okay. it. You all better right. never let it go. Oh, that's Zen for all practical purposes. 
And so for him, Zen is doing something worthy of your time, right? Which to him, again, is like maintaining your motorcycle, working on an engine. It could uh-huh. also be uh, the welder. Yeah. Because he remarked yeah, about the sure. welder and his art and, and what he did and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I mean, Zen, he didn't talk about Zen in Buddhist. You know, he really didn't. He, he brought it up a few times. A few, a times, few times he mentions Eastern philosophy. But I, I, I wrote it down. It's, this is a 430-page book by my count, and he brought up Zen on page 324 for the first time. <laughs> right. And then he just was talking about it as one of the many other things that he talks about through the course of the book. He talks about meditation Mm-hmm. And how you're supposed to just sit is the point of Zen. I I, did, I was hoping to get more Zen out of this book, so I didn't really, <laughs> <I'm> not, <laughs> I didn't bring a whole lot of Zen with me. Although I used to used to be interested in it and think about it a lot more. Yeah. Um, like I said, I read Zen in the Art of Archery. I can't even remember whether I read that before this or after it, but. But I think any of those activities, like Zen in the Art of Archery, that's one of those activities where you just have to be completely in the moment, right? Yeah. There's a there's a sort of paradox in mm-hmm. the way I look at it because it's like, okay, you go out and you build a rock garden or you, mm-hmm. or you clip a bonsai tree. Okay. And on the one hand, or a you what, do archery. What, what kind of tree? Bonsai. Mm. So then you get out there because you, you don't want to confuse it with bonsai, <laughs> which is how Americans say it. Bonsai <laughs> means like, you know, divine wind, long live the emperor. That's right. a completely yeah. different concept. You, you do these things and there's a combination of being hyper mindful to the task. Right but also losing oneself by being hyper-mindful to the task and letting something else complete the task. Like when you fire an arrow, mm-hmm. according to this book, Zen and the Art of Archery, as I recall, you don't shoot the arrow, you let it shoot right. the arrow. And well, it's like, a, I feel like there's a paradox between those two things. It's like in, you're so mindful that your mind is gone. In, in terms of maintaining your motorcycle, though, he says that's what it is. When your hands are doing something and you don't realize, you don't think right. about what they're doing, they are working on... The engine. They're, they are doing the maintenance of this motorcycle. Right. And you're totally disconnected from Except it. did you catch his methodology about working on a motorcycle, which is like he's got a system of everything in the motorcycle can be split into these two categories all the way down to every single tiny well, part. Uh, and then what a, he does is he uses the scientific method to troubleshoot. Right. And he goes through it. And it's like totally no, not anything no, Eastern no, he religion. Does, he doesn't do that because he, he, says, he says you can start there, but there are also the – what does he call them? The proofs or the axioms, these mm. a, a priori things that are also part of it. Because when he was talking about the scientific method, he was trying okay. to, he was talking about the difference between the classical and the romantic, right? The two halves or the two sides. He's talking right? about his notebook and he would get his notebook out mm. and he mm. and tried to try and troubleshoot the problem by like starting think, at the most basic level. I think he was level. saying you could. I think he oh, was saying maybe, you, okay. a person could do that. Yeah. But then he said the problem, the problem happens when that screw gets stripped out. Right. Well, then your notebook and, and all of your theory, your science, it all goes to hell at that point. Right. You have to have a priori knowledge. You have to sit back and then just meditate on what it could be to try to come up with alternative solutions to the problem because the scientific method would not lead you to those alternative. Only the romantic part would lead you to those, you know, basically the a priori knowledge. But let, let, before we do that, let, can we let's tell people what this book is about. So this book is essentially – well, I'll get into what it calls to mind later because it kind of gives away the conclusion what it calls to mind. But it's basically about, I mean, the plot anyway, the framing of the story is that a man living in the 1970s um, who was formerly a professor going on a road trip with his son across from Minneapolis across to California through Montana, wandering around a couple different places. Motorcycle road trip. Yeah. Motorcycle road trip and just kind of ruminating while he rides. 
uh, and through that story of driving places and visiting places where he'd had a former mental break, um, sort of letting us into the thought process that led to that mental break. And then, I don't know, do we want to just talk about what happens at the end right away? No, I think we're going to have to. We have to because I mean, of the drink. We have to spoil everything. We right? have to because yeah. of the drink, right? So right. at the end, essentially has like a, uh, the font changes and you can see that his former personality before his cure reasserts itself, takes over, and somehow that makes him and his son happy again. Which clearly, I mean, the relationship was bad all through the book right. with this guy that was constantly ruminating, like I said. And I, I was thinking like that. The son barely gets characterized. You barely know anything about the kid. He's get he gets like five or six lines right. every now and then. Well, until the end, and then you find until out the that end. he until seems end, right. to be having the same problems, mental problems mm -hmm. that the father does. Right, right. And so you can see he's treating him different. He's treating him kind of a certain way throughout. You know, he I'll, seems to just kind of ignore the kid, though. Yeah, he seems to spend all of his time sitting on the bike thinking about what. I, you know, not to dismiss it completely because it didn't like, it's not as if it led me, it didn't fail to lead me to some interesting thoughts, but most of it was just, just garbage thought. It sounded <laughs> like it was just rambling on and on. And I'm like, yeah. you ruined your life over this. <laughs> this, this is not even a good philosophy. This uh -huh. is just like the kind of stuff that people say to get themselves published. It doesn't even mean anything. You, know? <laughs> you, you need to work where I work. <laughs> well, I, I imagine I'd be very frustrated with it, you know, but it's rooted in Plato who I always found to be irritating, the idea of the forms and things like that. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like metaphysical garbage. Now, I do enjoy his dialogues. They're thought-provoking. And I, sometimes I think that's the point. Like you read a platonic dialogue and it's just supposed to get you thinking and maybe Plato didn't intend you know, these, these to be actual arguments for anything. Sometimes I think that. I remember reading The Republic and I was thinking, these arguments are such garbage. I think that he actually is just trying to get you to think. And doesn't care whether you come to any, like his conclusions are so weak and based on such, I don't know, or maybe he just lived 2,500 years ago. And I, I can't really relate to somebody that thinks right. that there's a world of forms. Do you remember when we read Marcus Aurelius? Yeah. And the Stoic philosophy that has come down to us is kind of like an interesting thing about how to live your life and, and how to, but then every once in a while, this other stuff would come through this metaphysical, metaphysical Greek stuff, garbage yeah. Yeah. that was all over the place about like, magical spheres flying through the air and stuff like that. <laughs> right, you know, right. What are you talking about? Yeah. What, where, how did you come up with that? All the rest of this is good. Stick with that. Stop talking about right. the magical floating spheres, you know. But it's, you know, it, it's back to what we were talking about. I think maybe in that dialogue or, or previous about not being able to relate to the context within which these people lived. Lived, yeah. Yeah, the Greeks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, this guy falls prey to something that I hear all the time, which is he's talking about, we have a society that's based on the Greeks. And I'm like, no, it isn't. It totally isn't. We read five or six books that ever belonged to the Greeks. We get a little bit of inspiration in our civilization. Our civilization is not mm. based on the Greeks. No, it is. They were a totally foreign Western, culture. Western civilization started with the Greeks, though. It's, this is true, but it's and, not. And I, think, I think that's what he's talking about. I don't, yeah, I don't. I think he's giving them too much. I think he's drawing too strong of a line from us to them. I think people over, overdo that. Mm -hmm. We're so different from them. Well, yeah. Whereas well, different, like, well, they, he's not, he's not for saying, instance, someone would say, oh, someone from China is so different from us and we're rooted in, the Greek, rooted in the Greek tradition. I'm like, I guarantee people in China are more like me and you today than we are like the Greeks by a million years. I don't think he's saying that we're like the Greeks. He's saying that Western thought is founded in, yeah. in Greek yeah. philosophy. Yeah, he said something. If, we, if the idea of truth hadn't been rediscovered by the Renaissance, we'd be living in the Stone Age. Hmm. 
and I'm like, we weren't living in the Stone Age before the Renaissance. The Middle Ages was not the Stone Age. That's mm-hmm. just it's just like an overwrought idea of the thread of Western civilization. Most everything has to have an origin somewhere, and and I think right. I think most people agree that that the Greeks are kind of the foundation of where we get our ideas from. I mean, sure, our ideas are different now, yeah. but. A thousand years ago, our ideas were probably close to the Greeks, different from what we, we have now. But, I mean, we stood on, on somebody's shoulders to get where we are now. Yeah. And, and the argument is just that the Greeks had most to do with it. Compared to anybody else in the world in 500 BC. Sure. 100%. Yeah. I just don't think there's all that much going to us from them. You know, there's a few things, you know, a few ideas. You know, he's right in the sciences. I mean, his, his argument is that, you know, scientific method, essentially, and scientific thinking, objectivity, these types of things come from Aristotle before that, the sophists um, had a different way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing called quality that he labels quality, right. um, where it was kind of a bridge between, you know, this what he calls romantic and classical, but what they would call like art and science, or actually uh, techne, and and art. It was kind of one or the other. Aristotle was all in for techne, denigrated the arts, as did uh, Plato. And so, you know, he created kind of this rational thought, scientific method, objectivity, and that's where we are today. And that was in 74. It was a lot closer to that than we are now. I mean, we've uh, become much more relative, postmodernism, poststructuralism. These kind of movements really only came out after Perzig. I remember a teacher, I I wrote something in my freshman composition class, and I Mm -hmm. said something about the scientific method. And my teacher this is where I realized that there's two different, comple- completely different worlds intellectually in like uh, academia. He said, well, there's a lot of questions about the scientific method since Einstein did his thing. <laughs> and I was like, I thought about it because I really respected this guy. So I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I thought about it. I thought about it. And I was like, that is a really dumb thing. That doesn't even make sense. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. What method do you think Einstein used <laughs> to come up with the theory of well, relativity? I mean, Einstein made leaps, though. He, he made leaps. and he, he But he, it was he, all borne out by scientific observation. A- afterwards. You know? yeah. Afterwards. Right. I mean, they, well, they, yeah. you know, he would come but up. But that's the method, He right? would come up with his hypothesis as a law, and then they would prove it afterwards, you know? Right, but it didn't, it didn't call into question this. It just, I mean, relativity just doesn't have anything. Well, theoretical. To, relativity has nothing to do with, I guess, what you're saying, which is like cultural relati- relativism, yeah. right? Like relativity in physics doesn't have anything to do with that. I think that's just somebody that doesn't know what... <laughs> Relativity. No, relativity, I mean, theoretical physics is is fairly relative. It's not something that you can really quantify. I mean, you've got particles that they're not there when you look at them. They're only there when you don't look at them. That's the weird thing is you can. You can predict with it. Well, you can supposedly predict, but you can't. Theoretical physics is very theoretical. It's not something that you can ever, you can't really see it. You, You can't. Really observe a lot of these things. It's all theory. Well, but the weird stuff, right? The weird stuff, like the the stuff that that this guy was talking about that happened after the turn of the century, like relativity and quantum physics, is mm-hmm. like we can't have a cell phone without those things. I mean, that's definitely no, co- you're like concrete science. You know, I mean, totally right. I was just like, there's Dude. a way that people who are in the liberal arts side of things mm-hmm. talk about these things. Yeah, and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, even though that's kind of my bent in terms of my interests usually tend mm-hmm. to be the liberal arts. I was like, I don't think like them. I think like the people on the science side. Mm-hmm. I have trouble with people using wishy-washy, this talking about quality. Mm-hmm. And he says, Hegel talked like this. And I was like, yeah. And you know what Schopenhauer said about Hegel? He said his work was just senseless, meaningless webs of language. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is 100% true. When you read Hegel, you're like, it's a bunch of garbage. <laughs> 
It doesn't even mean anything. <laughs> you have to spend your whole uh-huh. life learning to understand what he's talking about. And then you, by then you're like so invested in it that you have to think he's right. Otherwise, you just wasted the last 20 years of your life. Yeah. Learning what he's talking, you know, there's a lot of people like Jacques Lacan. There's a lot of people like that that I just. So you didn't like that. You didn't like the Chautauqua, as he calls it. That's not Chautauqua. I, I don't know. I would. I would. Wouldn't have minded some of sitting around talking with this guy over a campfire with a with a cup of whiskey would have been kind of fun. Yeah. But sometimes, kind of like too wrapped up in his own head. So what are we? What are we drinking this week? So this is called a split personality cocktail. Okay. A little play on uh, a little play on Mr. Perzig. A little play on the end um, of the on the end of the story. Right. You know? So that's what I was thinking is this reminded me of Fight Club. Okay. At that part where he suddenly yeah. at the end, it's like not super concretely stated that he's had a break, but you can read it when, you, when you're careful. Yeah. And the sort of rambling ideas about Western civilization and stuff like that. It's very critical about cities and materialism materialism mm-hmm. and things like that. It's yeah. very vain. I was actually, I was wondering if, if, if he got any ideas from this book. I was wondering actually how much influence this book had on, you know, other things that we I have. A, I have a great one for the end for my best surprise for okay. influence, which dawned on me three quarters of the way through the book. I was like, oh, this was a big influence on somebody. Yeah. And I, and I actually followed a little Google rabbit hole and I was like, oh yeah, this was a big influence. <laughs> for sure, anyway, sure. we'll, we'll talk about, we'll talk about that when it comes to my big surprise. So, but, uh, moving the conversation, this is actually kind of autobiographical. Uh-huh. So this all happened to Perzik. Yeah. He um, he did have a mental break. He was a okay. professor Even of Even the second part actually happened like all this? Yeah. I mean, he had a mental break. I don't know if the reconciliation, which happens at the end, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe it happened or I don't know. But he had <clears throat> a forced electroshock therapy. Yeah. Now, that was something that- the, Just like in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. And that was something that the government could force you to do. Yeah. That's crazy. You know, and that- Wild. And well, they were sterilizing people not long before right, that. Right. No, that's so, true. Because he's – so that kind of shocked me how old he was because mm-hmm. he's got this young son. Mm-hmm. And it, what where it tipped me off is he said something about – talking to someone. He was like, I was talking to these Negroes. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> talking to what? What did he just say? Right. And that's when I went right. and looked at how old is this guy? I was like, yeah. okay, he's like almost 50. Yeah. So he's born in 1928. Well, he fought in Korea. So that would have been yeah yeah. 19, there's a couple of right. There's a couple of cues like that. that show that he's really not a baby boomer. No, he's much he was born he's in the before 30s, right? 1928. 28. Okay, yeah. so he's like an, a much older generation. Where right. I was putting him as a boomer because it's it felt like 1974. It's like sure. not much older than my dad. Figured he was like 30 and had a kid that age, but no, right. he's much older, much right. older dad. And then had another kid later. I was thinking about that. He says um, he wanted to start a school where people could come to the school and just fail out. And then right. wander through life and like come, and then back. come back. Yeah. And I was thinking, that's I totally get that. I've mm-hmm. gone back and done some education as I've gotten older, and it's always worth a lot more. But yeah. the problem with that is that for most people, life intercedes. Yeah. You were twenty four. Your your life is already different than it was when you were nineteen. Right. Maybe you've had a kid. Maybe mm-hmm. you've gotten married, and all of a sudden things are getting more complicated. You have to work. You can't dedicate your time to education. And I'm like, that's why we kind of want people to get educated between 18 right. and 22 because they have the time to get educated then. I mean, it's not the end of the world if you don't. You can come back and do it later, but it's not that hmm. easy. You wouldn't want to plan everyone's life around, oh, just wander back to school when you're 30. Right. Well, that's a good point. I mean... Um, so what are we... What are we did, you, did you say what we're drinking? Yeah. It's, so it's a split personality cocktail. Oh, right. We said okay. what it's called. Okay, but what's in it? Found it on, uh, on YouTube because I, <laughs> I was trying to find something that kind of matches the right. theme. I was trying so, to find it because we didn't get in touch to talk about the ingredients of the right. cocktail. So I was trying to look it up and I was getting things from Pinterest and like five different sources of something called yeah. it. And I, so I was like, I can't, I can't, you I don't know, know which one. Is. Yeah, my apologies. So this yeah. is, it's essentially a mango margarita. Okay. With chamayo salsa in it. 
Do you know what chamayo salsa is? Is, uh, is chamayo the stuff that goes into uh, like a michelada? Is that the no. stuff that? No, chamayo is that, it's that red chili sauce, chili salsa that mm. um, people from Mexico, typically in Mexico, pour over fruit, oftentimes mangoes. Oh, okay. So you'll see a mango and they'll, they'll have like the salsa poured over it. Yeah. So it's a kind of a sweet sour type of thing. It, okay. it creates a savory sweet. So that's what this is. There's about a ounce and a half of tequila and then uh, mango puree, a little bit of orange juice, a little bit of uh, lemon juice, and then uh, this chamayo salsa. What are the ingredients top. of a margarita? I know it's tequila. What else? Tequila, lime juice, and triple sec. Oh, triple that's sec. A, that's okay. a traditional one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's a little little bit of a difference. Yeah. So yeah. a little bit of a difference. But if you if you taste it, so it's got kind of a floater of that chamayo on top. You'll taste it, and it'll, it'll be that kind of sweet and savory. That's not bad. Have you had? I think it's tamarind. Mm-hmm. You yeah, have candies that have yeah. tamarind on it. That's and not this, a, that's not a taste I'm super. Fa- well, this, this is better. To this me. Um, recipe actually calls for a tamarind rim. Okay, yeah. Uh, but I just you know didn't I, have I, it, I yeah. didn't want to do no, that. No, I've so. gotten candy before that had that just because I was like, oh, I want to try sure. that. That's a big Mexican thing. That was not my favorite. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, Mexican savory it's, it's delight. Required, so. It's an acquired taste. My, my wife loves this stuff, by the way. She's uh, yeah. she's Hispanic, you yeah. know, grew up on the border and uh, and really enjoys it. So I made one for her and left it at home with her. It's not bad, huh? No, no. I don't really taste the mango super strongly. It's it's there, mm-hmm. but it's a it's a hint of mango. Right. It's not smacking me in the face with, <laughs> you're eating a mango. So I was, I was interested at how, again, autobiographical it was. <clears throat> I was interested also in the fact that uh, he is a technical writer. Uh-huh, yeah. And he was a professor of rhetoric. Yeah, I was wondering if you knew that when you picked the yeah. book. No, I didn't. I was like, is this just inside <laughs> baseball? Like, <laughs> so I was a technical writer. Right. And I became a professor of rhetoric. I was thinking in the first bit when I started reading, and it was about the guy going on a road trip with his son, I was yeah. thinking, oh, maybe you picked this because you're thinking about me. And then he turns out to be a professor of rhetoric, and I was like, no, you're thinking about yourself. <laughs> I was like, maybe we just picked I did, the book I knew, randomly. I knew nothing about it. I, I remember that this is a huge book. In the 70s and 80s, like early 80s up to like uh-huh. mid 80s, yeah, everybody was reading this book. You know, in the 70s, there was a there was a big kind of a awakening of kind of an inward turn that people had. Okay, um, you know, working on themselves and you know being mindful sure. and blah blah sure. blah. Uh, and then, of course, in the 80s, and you got Namaste and everything else. You know, I remember this book being kind of in the zeitgeist. Yeah, my dad had this book. That's why I read it. I went I went through his his old books one time. And found the ones that I was like, oh, these seem like something I should read. And this is one of the ones I pulled aside. Right. Also, The Portable Nietzsche, which was a disaster. I tried reading <laughs> that. I was like, he, he, t- he saw me holding the book. He was like, you're not going to understand a word of it. And he was completely right. I had no <laughs> idea what he was talking about. Well, at least about. you tried. So, at least I tried, yeah. So. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, that's I picked the book. I knew it was a, a classic. I knew it was something, well, I, I knew it was purported to be a Purportedly classic. Purportedly a classic, Yeah, right. and, and, and again. We're going to decide that tonight. Yeah, of course. Well, you'll decide it. That's why I picked it. You know, it was really dragged. God, it dragged in so many places. Sometimes. The endless Chautauqua. So the Chautauqua, by the way, listeners, so he starts out on this motorcycle, and then he starts, as, as Dave said, starts ruminating. Right. And having these long philosophical discussions as if giving a lecture, which is what a Chautauqua is. A Chautauqua is kind of this spoken vocal conference or presentation yeah. where you exchange ideas and so on and so forth. And so that's what he's supposedly doing is he's telling – he's thinking to himself. He is It's a first-person narrative and he's kind of like the god narrator. So he's, he's giving us all these problems and as he works along, you start getting these little hints that things are a little bit different maybe than, right. than it all seems. Like he talk, starts talking about this guy named Phaedrus who was this guy that was obsessed with – finding a philosophical answer to the question, what is quality? Again, you later find out that Phaedrus was his other personality. It was the, per, it was right. the 
it was the precursing personality <clears throat> to the person that is talking to you now. Right. The person that is talking to you now is a result of electroshock therapy and being in a mental hospital. Okay. So about Chautauqua, before we go any further, yeah. so did you ever read or I, I, I think it's a play, but did you ever, did, did you ever read Inherit the Wind mm. about the Scopes Monkey Trial? That's where I encountered that word for the first time. Mm -hmm. It's like talking about, like you said, like it's sort of like a traveling meeting tent yeah. for people to argue Mark Twain. It was big politics. with Mark Twain. Yeah. Yeah. He used to do those so things. we were in class, ninth grade English class. I still remember this. And the teacher says, she calls on my friend, Justin, out of nowhere, out of the whole class. And she's like, do you know what Chautauqua means? And he was like, yes, I think it means, it's an Iroquois word that means bag tied in the middle. And she was like, what? Everybody's <laughs> <laughs> just like, quite like, and he was like, yeah. And then and everybody's really impressed. And afterwards he was like, my grandparents live on Lake Chautauqua up in upstate New York. And nice. like, so I, so I always knew that word. It was just so random. I was like, that was, that was the best was moment brilliant. to like shine, like <laughs> that was awesome. hit the ball out of the park. Especially he probably didn't do anything before class at all. So I don't know. I don't know whether he actually <laughs> read the material or not, but it was but it's, funny. uh, so he's doing this, goes along with his motorcycle. He uses motorcycle maintenance as his kind of entryway or way to relate what he's saying. So yeah, he uses it as a thing that he knows deeply, cares about deeply, has put a lot of thought into, like a real life thing. But that it's easy for the for the reader to relate to, right? Sure, because it's yeah. it's uh, he always brings it back to motorcycle maintenance, no matter what he's talking about. When he finally kind of gets down to Zen and talking about what Zen is, and he never really says this is what Zen is, right? But it's talking about uh, maintaining your motorcycle as a part of to to get to a place where you are at one with with maintaining the motorcycle, if that makes sense. So you're not in invested in anything else. You're just doing the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. That's all you're thinking about. And he does this every time they stop. Every time he stops, he checks the spark plugs, he checks the chain, and he tells you, I did this, and then I did this, and I did this. And so he's actually meditating, essentially, I think. Yeah. Every time they stop, you know, it's kind of a proof of concept type of thing. And so as the, as the story goes, you find out that, like I said, he was Phaedrus. Mm -hmm. um, that was his previous personality. He, he starts. Did he, you think that for someone that thinks he knows a lot about motorcycles mm -hmm. and spends a lot of time maintaining his motorcycle and talking about his motorcycle, that his motorcycle ends up having a lot of problems? <laughs> like if his motorcycle breaks down like well, he, over he had, and over again. So he had, he had an old Honda. Is that what's it's just an old bike is the problem? His, his friend had, okay. a, had a brand new BMW. Right. He had a, a Honda. And in fact, um, the Smithsonian bought that Honda. Oh, neat. Put it in the Smithsonian. I'd go see that. It's like a it's probably down it's like a nineteen like sixty eight Nighthawk. No, it wasn't a Nighthawk. It was this a something only Hawk. a six year old bike and it broke down this much. Well, this is nineteen seventy four. See the funny thing yeah. is is he said something about it was a dig at the quality of Japanese manufacturing. Right. And I had to remember, I was like, Oh yeah, Japanese stuff yeah. used to be considered junk. Like junk. Yeah. And it was like by by the time I was growing up, right. if you bought an American car, you were a fool. Well we talked about you know, that like, last time. You know, it, it was uh, you know, Doc Brown's like, here's why the time machine's messed up. This chip is made in right, Japan. Right, right, right. It's like, what are you talking about? All the best stuff comes from Japan. Yeah. That's right. I forgot about that. You that know. must not that must be in Three or something. I was like. in one. Is in one? Yeah, I was in one. Oh, I don't remember that. Uh, uh, when he's first looking at the at the car and you know everything's all messed up on the huh. on the time machine. I'm gonna, yeah, go, yeah. I'm gonna go on the record as saying that line must be from two or three because I know one. I think I know two. Pretty. I'm pretty sure it's from three. You think I'd like so? to, I'd like to do an on air bet. Okay. We could pause the recording and look up that quote. Okay. We're gonna do that, ladies and gentlemen. We're gonna we're, right, gonna, we're pause gonna pause the recording. That. What do you need, Doc? All the best stuff is made in Japan. 
There we go. So the the scene does exist, but as you can hear from the echoey, <laughs> creepy music in the scene, it's uh, it's where they find the car underground in, in part the mine three. in part I three because Doc one. left it from the old sworn it was part Well, one. it's because it's in 1955, and oh, most wow. of their interactions are in 50. You know, I think that that kind of biased, I, I guess, mm-hmm. existed mm-hmm. obviously. So I think his bike was a 60s model, late 60s model uh, Honda. Okay. And I don't think I don't know if motorcycles were meant to be driven thousands and thousands of miles back then, you know? I mean, they, you really had to... Probably not. No. Really had to work, probably work on them, tighten things would up, think, do everything like, that he was doing. I yeah. Mean, well, also the roads weren't as good back then. Yeah, didn't really... And um, he, he never took highways or... Uh, wasn't sorry, on the freeways. interstate. Yeah, he never took like, freeways. Yeah. Can you imagine, you, like, you know drive, like be, not being able to find where you're going? Right. Like, they're just guessing where the roads Look at go. Look map, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Looking at the map, and I think this is how it had to get there. I'm old enough to remember road tripping with a map, though. Like yeah, Going on a road too. trip and, like, yeah. not, like, driving all the way to California. We used to buy an atlas. Using a, like, right, buy a road atlas. a paper road yeah. atlas, yeah. Absolutely. My kids would be like, what, you, they, yeah, what my, is that? Yeah. My son loves the paper road atlas, uh-huh. but I don't think he could imagine relying on it. Like, <laughs> like not being able to find your right. way unless you saw the road The atlas. hardest part was navigating large cities. With a paper map. That sure. is not yes, freaking easy at very all. I remember doing that yes. in Brisbane, Australia, uh, Honolulu, oh, yeah, New York. I mean, all over the place. But also know. we plotted our – I went on this road trip with my friends and we plotted our entire journey across the country just eyeballing it. Mm-hmm. Like Google tells you what's the most efficient route to go across the country right. now. Whereas like we were like, oh, well, we kind of want to go to Chicago. Right. So yeah. we went up to Chicago. Then we went down to St. Louis, <laughs> New Orleans, not efficient San Antonio. Yeah, not efficient. Up to the Grand Canyon, <laughs> then down to L.A. Not efficient, know. but it was a great road trip. It was an amazing yeah. road trip. Yeah, absolutely. Especially uh, one of these days I should just – I think I should set to paper the story of that road trip. The, the personalities involved yeah. and like everything about it was just – just terrific. Just chef's kiss. You can't see me doing it, but chef's kiss <laughs> for all-time road trips. So the Two things that really annoyed me. He kept what he called his motorcycle. Uh-huh. Do you remember? Uh, the the cycle. Okay. And the machine. The machine was cooling down next to the road. Right, right, right. When you have a cycle like this. Does he this, never say bike? No, he never says never bike. Say bike? Okay. Never says bike. Never says motorcycle. Mm-hmm. He always calls it a cycle or, or machine, which is annoying as hell. Yeah. Um, I don't know why. It just really started grating on me. But I wonder I wonder if he was doing that on purpose because he makes a whole soliloquy about his friends not liking machines. Right. You know? Right. Machine puts it, to, puts it in its place as a piece of technology. Right. Not confusing it with bike. The other day yeah. I told somebody, oh, I rode my bike over here. And they're like, oh, oh cool. You what, do you, what do you ride? Nice. I was like, like my bicycle. <laughs> like, this is not a cool. I'm not trying to sound cool. Like I rode yeah. my bicycle yeah. over here. Like, Murray, what kind yeah. of you got? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's a really old mongoose from 1996 or This is the one you've crashed multiple times. This is the one on I the, crashed yeah. multiple times, yeah. <laughs> it's been through a lot. Always because you're drinking or normally because no, you're drinking. No, 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 no. Well, actually, you, you crashed, crashed it, sober. Yeah, I crashed yeah. it sober on the way over here. No, there was no drinking involved. Only on the way back. No, it's that that bike is like um, my R2-D2 when Luke just doesn't want another Astromech droid because he's been through so much with it. I'd rather fix my old Astromech than get a new one. So Great analogy. Yes. That's fantastic. Yes, exactly. Always bring it back to Star Wars. So <laughs> he's headed out to Montana. He's headed to Bozeman right. eventually. And they go – across Montana from Minnesota and the Dakotas, and then down across this place called the Beartooth Pass, which he doesn't call it that, but I went there last summer, and it was, like, spectacular. Was it a horse tooth? It's, it's a Beartooth okay. Pass. He doesn't mention that name, I don't okay. think. But I looked it up a couple of the towns because I was like, that sounds like the place I was. And I looked uh-huh. up, it totally is. It goes, like, way above the tree line. And it's just like spectacular That's views. Yellowstone, is that right? It's just north of Yellowstone. Oh, okay. if, you, right. if you exit Yellowstone from the 
east. Okay. You can you can head up this road and cut into uh, Montana. You go through Wyoming and then up into Montana. Mm-hmm. And it, you, you go over these, like, amazing mountains. I mean, just – I have these great pictures of the kids climbing on the rocks and stuff up there. But it was like it, – it's like – 11 or 12,000 feet, way, way wow. high up, like yes. really high up. I was just there last summer, and him talking about it, again, I was like, I should go back to Montana. <laughs> like, I really love it out. Maybe my favorite part of the world. Right. I just love that part of the world. It's, it's amazing. Those those gigantic, sharp mountains and everything like that. So I think I think that this book sort of whetted my appetite for going there. Maybe this is like subconsciously there, though. Yeah. Because you take your son, you take Alex everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. all the time, so... I do. I do. He's like my little buddy for these adventures. Yeah. I'm kind of worrying what's going to happen when he gets bigger, if he's going to like not want to hang out. That would not be fun. We'll yeah, see. that's the worst. Yeah. That is yeah. the worst. I was really jealous of how much he knows about the weather. <laughs> like he's talking about the weather in the first part of the book, and I was like, this is – see, that's – that actually draws – it just it started as just an idle comment, but I'm thinking it draws the distinction between the kind of knowledge I think is useful and interesting mm-hmm. and talking like Hegel. Okay. Talking about the weather – I'm interested. I'm like, oh, what do you know about the weather? And it's like actual facts, right. things like that, that, that can give you information about tomorrow. Right. And talking about Hegel, it's just <laughs> like, boy, don't we feel smart while we're talking about Hegel. Sure. It's like you didn't come up with anything, you know. Uh-huh. You're running off on a tangent. Like, like um, does he talk about Alfred North Whitehead and the footnotes on all of Western philosophy as a series of footnotes to Plato? I don't that, think so. Did he mention that in here? Anyway. Maybe he did. Uh-huh. But – it feels like that when you read. So you're like, oh, this is just like inside baseball talking about dialectic. I'm like, what are you even talking about anymore? At the end, he really gets into Plato, really gets into Aristotle, Socrates, Sophus. Mm-hmm. Talks about Kant. I was really thinking at the end that, man, this is like deep stuff for people who know this stuff. You yeah. Know? Um, and I and I sort of know the so stuff. Do you think it's that? Do you think it's designed for people? Because that's one level, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's just references to people that already know this stuff. But it is it is it also designed to sort of hoodwink people who don't know anything about it? That's a good question. He's talking I about Kant and Kant's yeah. like definition of like a priori time. See, and I'm I think, like, I don't think he's getting this stuff right. And the whole thing, like, I don't know if your if your preface included this, mm-hmm. but Phaedrus does not mean wolf, right? You know, like I, yeah. I I don't even really know ancient Greek, and I was like, I think I know what wolf yeah. is he, in Greek. Yeah, he like, I think he I know this. I think it's in lycanthrope, right? Lycos for wolf. I yeah, mean, probably. I, so I was like, that's not what Phaedrus means, but it's a pretty big mistake. I feel like it's – is it designed to just put one over on people that don't know anybody? No, he, he made a mistake. He, he okay. said on the forward that okay. I had, it was – he acknowledged that that's not what it meant, okay. that he made a mistake. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a good question. I don't think it, it's meant to hoodwink anybody. So the, the genre – do you know what the genre is, what they call this genre? It's philosophical fiction. Okay. Okay. Which is not as ridiculous. There are books like that. Right. So well, and, and this is his kind of philosophical treatise. That's what it is. I mean, yeah. he's trying to work it out. But they are his beliefs. These are the things that he believes right. as a philosopher or as a rhetor or whatever you want to call him. Yeah, things that he's, like things that he's come, uh, um, you know, come to a conclusion about. I think um, something like the weather, that's a really good example of the quality piece that he's pursuing because it's a bridge between – the classical and the romantic, uh, or it's a piece between the techne and the, and the art. Talking about the weather, it's something useful. However, you can talk about it very factually. But he was also talking about it in terms of the way something looks and the way it makes you feel. He was always talking about, you know, it was getting depressed and so on and so forth. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, but then he was also talking about it in, <clears throat> insofar as 
it was useful to know this stuff because well, you know the part where he's in the classroom and he gives the gives the takes everybody's essays and has everybody look at them and like decide which ones are good and which ones are bad, mm-hmm. and he uses that to prove that everyone can recognize a thing called quality mm-hmm. and that and agree on what it is, right. and so I mean that's again not to keep bashing. Plato's theory of the forms, but that's what that is. It's mm-hmm. like saying that there's this there's this thing out there everyone can recognize in this thing, and it's the form, mm-hmm. you know, outside the cave of quality. And I'm like, well, what people are really recognizing, I guarantee if you were to quiz them and look at them, what they're recognizing is the technique. They're recognizing people making mistakes, using lousy words, repeating things, run-on sentences. And if you have too much of that, people are going to agree it's not very good. I would, I would, dis- I would disagree with but that. But I think as long as you get the technique right, People will disagree about the quality of the work. Some people will say, "Oh, I really like this argument," and other people will say, "I don't like this argument." Yeah. They're not. You're not going to get the same correlation if people are, you know, I mean, if you're following your strunk and white and getting your techne right when you're writing, mm-hmm. people are going to say, "Oh, this guy's a better writer." The problem than the with other that. Guy. The problem with that is you have things like on the road, you know, you, where you have almost stream of consciousness sometimes, right? You know, where it, it's not classical argument where, what, you know, what not book a logical did, structure what book did we talk about it was in catcher in the rye mm-hmm. where he's very careful to occasionally set aside chunks of prose where he shows i know how to write yeah i know how to write i'm not doing yeah. this because i right. don't know how to write yeah and i i don't remember jack kerouac doing as much of that i think no, he, he really just leans into no he le- and that's what he wanted to do but, but occasionally but, but, he puts together a really beautiful well-written but he can write book. yeah but he can write you know of course yeah it's like picasso my argument my argument so there there are there are composition professors and people that, that teach rhetoric who think a lot like, I mean, he sort of talks about it a little bit where allow your classroom to be kind of this lab and allow right. students to write whatever they want to write, right. however they want to write it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no wrong answer type of thing. So that's, that's their argument. And they hold up people. There's a, a, an author named Donzel Dua. She's, she's famous for border rhetorics and, you know, frontier rhetorics, they call okay. it and so forth. And she's, she was a, a Hispanic. I think uh, her family's from Mexico. So in a lot of her writing, she switches back and forth between English and, and Spanish and um, has these forms that are more similar to forms that you'd find in Spanish writing, even though she's writing in English and stuff H- like that. Hemingway does that in um, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Yeah, Hemingway. It took d- me a while to realize kinda, why does saying thou. Yeah. Keep saying thou. And it's- Hemingway kind of does that as well. And, and so they point at people like that and say, you know, see, students can – do that. But my argument, and I, I think we've talked about this before. It's possible. We're starting to go over some of the same stuff. Because <laughs> I talk about, about it when I, you know, when I talk about it, Picasso is like, you've got to know the rules before right. you can break them. We talked about, yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and like, you know, Absolutely. Like Picasso. So, I mean, but you have to know the rules, right? right? Picasso was a genius. Picasso figured out all the rules of painting on his own without a whole lot of form. And mm-hmm. I think he did get some formal education. He did. But, but he, had, he had it pretty much nailed By the time down. he was 12, he was painting like a master. Right. So... That's a different story than your average person. Your average right. person is going to need to go to school to get their technique chops. Well, right. And know, so my, ar- my argument is that if you, if you treat the composition classroom where they can just write whatever they want, however they want to write it, you're doing a disservice. You know, Al- yeah. allow them to yeah. find their voice, right. but show them, okay, these are all the rules. So, so these are the lines that you can Absolutely. paint out of, yeah, we, but yeah, you've got to know what the lines are. When, when you're rejecting a rule, mm-hmm. you need to have a reason for doing yeah. it. We talked about – we talked about uh, Terry Pratchett, the last episode that I did with Chris that, that uh, was our interim episode. And Terry Pratchett keeps putting together paragraphs and then not, not indenting the paragraph when he switches speaker. Ah. And I honestly couldn't find out why he was doing it. Huh. 
I was like, I know he knows better. So right. there's got to be a reason behind it, but I couldn't find it. And it was super annoying to me. <laughs> I was having trouble telling who was right. talking. And that's the kind of thing. It's like, okay, if you're going to reject that, please explain to me. You don't have to explain to me why, but I need there to be a reason. Right. I, I just, you don't know how to indent a paragraph. Can't be the reason. <laughs> that's not, that's not going to work for me. Like, I think a lot of what he's talking about is like a revolution in teaching mm -hmm. that you and I never experienced, I don't think. Or anyway, I didn't. Um, maybe we're in different school systems, so I don't know. But I always grew up with a little more freeform educational system. Mm -hmm. It always shocked me when I'd go to a classroom and I'd have a teacher, and there were usually someone from another country who would do the, the way Aristotle would teach, which is like, there are seven emotions in the world. Right. And you're like, wait, what? Wait, what? Like, because yeah. my, my upbringing, my education was always, don't make a statement like that. Before we said, why? Where right. are these seven? Do you have any other suggestions for what <laughs> right, they could? Because right. I don't want to have a discussion based on that. And I found, like, I went to school in the Middle East for a little while at, at a small university there, and that was the way they taught. Mm -hmm. They'd come out to you and they'd say, these are the things. Right. And I, my first thought would be like, the heck they are. What are you talking? Yeah. I want to have a conversation about these, these lists you're giving me constantly. It, mm -hmm. It's Aristotle. It's the influence of Aristotle in the teaching totally still exists in a lot of the world, or at it least does. it did, it no, did it you know, 20, 30 years ago. I don't know if things have revolutionized since then, but it's that part of the revolution in teaching I'm super interested in and super uh, sympathetic towards. But not so much like what you're saying where you just don't have any rules because I think people need to know the rules. If they're going to reject them, that's fine, but you do need to know the rules. There's yeah, a reason. Yeah. Clarity in writing suffers if you don't have any rules. Well, and we've taken, you know? we've taken a turn in the last 20 years in, in the U.S. so far as education goes. You know, I have, I have, I've taught, gosh, more than a few students, international students. I've been on their dissertation committees from, especially from the Middle East and from China. Mm. And they're having a real, a real problem teaching students English, uh, English composition okay. and conversational English over there because what they do is they teach students the rules Right. Strictly the rules. Like right. these are the grammar rules. Yeah. And these are the rules in, you know, in conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's it. But there's so much nuance that they don't teach. They never teach it within context. Yes. So they'll, they'll give them a test of the rules. Right. They'll say, you know, um, you know, what's the difference between a prepositional phrase and whatever, you know, uh -huh. and what's a, what's a modifier and what's a verb, blah, blah, blah. So they'll teach them the rules and they take a test on the rules, yeah. you know. But they never actually have to write a sentence or uh, write a paper, rather. Never really have to have a conversation to pass their classes. So these yeah. people graduate uh, with, quote, unquote, you know, knowing English and yeah. uh, go to get a job. And they're just they're, they're terrible. Companies it's find a, out that they it's know nothing a about huge. It. And I think people play this. It is a huge intellectual achievement to speak another language, to, to really Absolutely. speak another language, right. especially something as different as if you're a Chinese speaker learning English or an Arabic speaker learning English or something. Mm -hmm. I think people play that down. I think it's just like some little skill you can learn. And it's really not everybody can do it, you know, not, not really learn to speak it. I'm, I'm always amazed. My wife came here to America when she was nine and didn't speak a word of English. Mm -hmm. And I just talk to her every day in English. We just speaking. I, sometimes I forget that. Mm -hmm. and it's a really, really impressive achievement to do that. Now, she was yeah. young, but still, I mean, just to, to, to develop that level of achievement in a foreign language is a really spectacular right. thing. I had a guy, when I, was, when I was in Jordan, this guy came up to me one day and he said, Arabic is a more poetic language than English. And I was like, okay. okay. And he was like, for instance, English only has four words for love. Arabic has 75. And I was like, I would beg to differ about yeah. that. I mean, I don't know how many. 
I, I can't speak intelligently about the you know corpus of Arabic love poetry, yeah. but I could tell you there's a lot more ways in just Shakespeare to refer to love than four. Well, so, that's that's the point. It's like we might have we not. But if you learn things by rote. That's well, the kind of statement you end up making. There's you know, a difference between, between words and expressions. Like we might have right. maybe four words for love, but we have an infinite number of expressions mm -hmm. to, you know, to demonstrate love or something exactly. like that. Exactly. And the poet, that's one of the contributions that something like poetry and drama makes is giving us more ways to refer to things. So. Right. Giving me some chimayo. Yeah. Top of my thing. Absolutely. So have you ever read any of these books that are like the philosophy of Star Trek or, you know, Religion and Lord of the Rings and stuff like there's all these books like this that you see at the store. I think this book is where those books come from. Do you want to try that? Just see what it tastes like. Uh, yeah, sure. Pretty good, right? Like sure. salty, chili. Yeah, it is kind of like the tamarind. Yeah. It's not completely unlike that. Yeah, I think this this could kind of fit there. Um, I've read those before. I've, I've never read those before. I've seen them, though, like the philosophy of Star Trek. And right. I read, yeah, I think, uh, The Science of Star Trek at some point a long, long okay. time ago. I guess by way of starting to get around to my argument about whether it's a classic, mm -hmm. having influenced hundreds of books along that line, it's a pretty big deal. Um, I don't know. You know, I saw the similarities with Fight Club. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much of an influence it actually was. There's a lot of on the road in this, mm -hmm. obviously, and all the other road trip right. type books that come out around that time. What other influences do you think this book has? Has on ha, has it made or does has it, it have, has it had on yeah what future influence that it had? Um, I have no idea. Uh, you know, I have to be honest with you. I'm totally drawing a blank on that. Yeah. Um, it said it was the best selling philosophy book of all time. Right. Which I'm not. I, I, that doesn't like blow my mind. That seems like it might be right. Have you ever read Sophie's World? No. It's very similar. It's like the story of a little girl. And it goes through the history of philosophy by like a fictional narrative about a little okay. girl. That one I think is kind of better in some ways. Okay. Um, but this is before it, so you got to give it credit. It doesn't ramble as much and it's not. <laughs> I get annoyed with the guy for just going on and on sometimes, especially because he's neglecting his child. That drives me crazy. Well, he's not neglecting him. The, the child's behind him as uh, riding a motorcycle. But he's not talking to the kid and he's well, dragging the kid along. Have you ever this. ridden a motorcycle? Oh, fair enough. But I mean, when they're not on the motorcycle and they're hiking and stuff like that, he's still shiitakeing in his well, head. It's when I hike with my son, I take the time to but talk. But the kid to him, always you know? wanders off and yeah, you know, I guess something like I that. I would too. I would too <laughs> if my dad was silently well, that, pontificating about quality. Well, do, you, do you remember at the end his son's saying, "All you do is think." I think silently pontificating is an oxymoron. I wish I hadn't used. By the way. <laughs> but you know, that's what his, his son says. Like, you don't do anything anymore. All right. you do is just sit there and think. Right. That's all you do. Yeah. And that's what he's been doing the entire time. So he hasn't been. Which is he, why the redemption passage is really good. It did make yeah. me like the book a lot more, mm -hmm. that it showed that he knew that this was all. Right. That, the, that Phaedrus wasn't the bad, unhealthy one, that the middle guy yeah. is the unhealthy one. Right. And then he goes back to that. And I don't know if I buy it, but well, I did like that. You know, that other, was a better thesis to the book. The other interesting turn is that he is not at all in the moment of the adventure that he's on. Right. Right. All he does is preach about being in the moment, being in the moment, motorcycle maintenance at Zen, everything else. And at the same time, he's totally missing you know, someone, this, this Someone trip. once said that someone else, their whole life, they looked away to the future, mm -hmm. to the horizon, never their mind on where they were, what they were doing. <laughs> I don't remember who said that. Yeah, I don't know. But I believe he had something to do with Zen in some D way. Did he? Yeah. Um, and I think that's there's 
you know, that's the conflict, right? Yeah. It's like you're talking about mindfulness, but you're not being mindful. Yeah, but you're not being but mindful. But your mindfulness allows you to not right. be mindful, which is, I'm sure, kind of a koan in itself, mm-hmm. right? Like sort of the, the, the ridiculous things yeah. that Zen talks about to give you enlightenment. Right. He doesn't talk about enlightenment at all. No. Although maybe the conversion he, back he into uses, Phaedrus he is uses supposed to be. the word Tao a couple of times. He uses the Tao, which is, or I Tao, think, confusing yeah. something with Zen. I don't think this has yeah, much to do with I Tao. I, I, he did spend, I mean, he spent, I think, 10 years at a at a Hindu university in, in India, yes. I believe. Yeah. So, I, know. I mean, it doesn't really give know, us much about that. He doesn't, but I mean, he's got, got the chops more than I do, you know. True. But, um, uh, one of my friend's dads actually was a. Um, Ended up getting a divinity scholar at Harvard Divinity School. And he had studied his whole life. He actually dragged his whole family to India. And like Oof. my friend, like I was like, I, th- I was like, oh, cool. You got to live in India. And he was like, no, it was awful. It's the <laughs> poorest country in the world. It's a miserable yeah. place to be. Right. I was like, oh, it's such a terrible take on it. But yeah, you were a little kid that got dragged mm-hmm. to this place for your dad's like intellectual passions. I was like, this really reminds me of this kid, like being dragged around, having to listen to his dad yammer on about quality. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of boomer in that. Although the guy's not really a boomer, like the bad things about boomers. And I don't, I don't buy into bashing the boomers. I think they have a lot of great qualities, but this being so introspective that you screw your life up. (laughs) Right. Like that's a, that's a quality of that generation. Well, the seventies, like I said, the seventies were big on that. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if it was the Boomers leading it or the boomers following it. And there are other like I mean this guy's a little older gurus. than a boomer, right? So yeah. I think some of these older guys, Kerouac's not really a boomer. Like a lot of these guys. No, that, Kerouac's like fifty eight though. I mean that's that's I a mean long when he was born though, he's older than that. Oh, you mean he's writing he, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, true, 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 like true. Well I think a lot of these guys were an inspiration to the boom yeah. generation. Um, they weren't really part of it themselves. Right. I think that's yeah, being being so introspective and so quote unquote true to yourself that you mm-hmm. forget that you have actual responsibilities. Like having a child, deciding to have a child <laughs> and being a father is not something someone foisted on you because right. society is has bourgeois values. Take care of your kids, man. Right. Like y- you owe them that. I don't have a lot of sympathy for that that particular thing. Sure. Like abandoning your actual relationships to go to India and you know, yeah. learn about something. But anyway, so. Um, well, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, you could you could blame it on, and he sort of does, like electroshock. Yeah. You know, it changed his yeah. personality. Because they tried. Yeah, and it was forced on him. They, they tried yeah, to, to kill this other personality. That's messed up, yeah. And so when they did that, you could argue that he became this completely rational thing. Sure. Kind of incapable of yeah. that warmth and the connection that. He yeah, that's why. Son, I, you know? That's why I think the ending really does redeem the character throughout. Like the end, like the character throughout is pretty annoying. Yeah. But then you get to the end, you're like, oh, he's supposed to be annoying. I'm right. supposed to be annoyed by this person, and yeah. then I have more sympathy with the story. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, this is a better book than it was before that happened. Although right. I didn't think it was a bad book. I was reading it. I was enjoying it. it. Goes on a little bit. My least favorite bits are the parts where he's at school, really getting into the nitty gritty. I don't mind him talking about Kant every once in a while and things mm. like that. Stuff's fun. You know, University of Chicago, you mean? When he's at University of Chicago yeah. and he has like the big showdown with the professor there. Yeah. And I was just like, first of all, it sounds like you're projecting your stuff onto this guy. Right. I don't think this guy really had that much invested in this conversation. <laughs> right. I don't think the whole class was watching Comple- you. What is that? Agree. Spotlighting. He's spotlighting yeah. on the whole class. Yeah. But but again, it ends up being that, yeah, he's supposed to be mentally ill. So maybe, yeah, yeah he's spotlighting. It's right. like true to the character. So I don't know. Did you did you hear about what happened to Chris? Uh-uh. His son? His son. Um, oh, yeah. He got, got stabbed. Got into a conversation with some guy and got, got stabbed. Yeah, he got mugged. 1979. So He got mugged outside of a Zen institute. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which is terrible. Yeah, isn't yeah. that crazy? Well, he got in sort of an argument. Yeah, yeah it was a mugging. Yeah, yeah that's right. Got it was a mugging. Yeah. He was like 22 years old. That's why he had the, the child later in life because he thought uh-huh. he thought that it was kind of a reincarnation of of yeah. his first. Yeah, that was that was pretty dark. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, Stand By Me. Yeah, a little bit. Because the guy's named Chris mm-hmm. and he gets stabbed. So what was your biggest surprise? So my biggest surprise was reading kind of the background of this. Okay. And finding out that this book was rejected 121 times. Right. Yeah. And uh, before some editor finally took a chance, uh, it, it has sold, it's got to be more because uh, there's two right here, but uh, sold over 4 million copies mm-hmm. in like 20-something different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, smashing success, one of the most important uh, books on philosophy um, best-selling books on philosophy. Um, I think it's important to make the distinction between philosophical fiction and philosophy, though. I don't think this is a philosophy book. I, no, I don't, no, I don't, there's just, no, no systematic philosophy in this. You can't. Yeah, you can't get his philosophy from reading. Well, he his writes. Book. He writes another one. It's on right. quality. You'd have and, to read. You'd would, have to read that. The, that would be the Leela something. Yeah, I, can't remember what uh, it was. I think that one's closer to a book An of philosophy. philosophy yeah. Book, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I mean, just you know, editors are idiots. <laughs> I I, uh, I was rejected. I, Please you know, let us. Well, no, I've I've never even actually gotten to the editor stage. It's all the agents that. <laughs> well, agents and editors—they're all they're all idiots. You know, yeah, and, there and, you go. Uh, oh, they're lovely people, and please, please uh, buy my mine book. Mine is very good. Yeah, there you the go. one I currently have. But see, it took me so many rejections right. to get to her, and I guess that's what it happens is you just have to wait until the right person looks at it. I think you know? so. And you just have to kind of persevere. And, uh, and, and stories like that, actually, if you are a creative person, mm-hmm. stories like that are important because they, they're, they're kind of the, they're the mythos or the mythos, as he, as he yeah. calls it, uh, that helps to get you to persevere, right? Uh, but that was really surprising to me. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's not – when you think about it, though, I mean, when you read the book, you could see why it would be rejected. It, it's sort of – you're not sure it's going anywhere. And yeah. It's a little – Yeah, know, it's a pretty unique flavor, isn't it? It's very unique. Um, but I think it, it scratched an itch that was around at that time yeah. in a way that maybe wouldn't have been terribly predictable. Right. I'm rereading Harry Potter with uh, with my daughter right now. Yeah. And uh, I heard about a rejection that J.K. Rowling got one time where some guy just recommended a writing class to her. Yeah. And I'm reading the book again, and I'm like, he wasn't wrong. She did actually need to learn more about how to write. Well, she became a better writer. She became end, a much the, better writer. By the end yeah. of the series, yeah. But the idea itself was, was great. I remember I picked it up the first time. I love those books. But, but that was another despite, book that I think was know. rejected 50 times or 75 times yeah. or something like yeah, that yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm going back and reading and I'm like, he, he wasn't wrong. Like mm-hmm. she probably, if I was, re- if she was in my writing group, I'd be like, work on this, work on that, mm-hmm. you know. But it's the underlying idea that carries it. And I think that's what's going on here. There's right. like a, except this is more like just hitting right when the, Iron yeah. is hot, you right. know, in, in society. Yeah. Like people were out there and they were like, ooh, Zen. I need to learn about Zen. Yeah. You know, what right. is Zen? Like, again, we mentioned Star Wars. I mean, it's like the Japanese philosophy is underlying it. People were fascinated with that stuff at that yeah. time, you know, like the East. Enter the Dragon, same thing. Right around the same time. Was yeah, it the no, year before? True. Yeah, you know? 74. Yeah, that's right. So there's a fascination with the East and the West mm-hmm. during those during those years. That, yeah, um, for sure. Maybe because of Vietnam. Could be. I was just I never that even we, really thought you know, about it we that just, way. Just over there. I'd yeah. have just been encountering the East. Right. And, I mean, it was Japan, Korea, Vietnam. So it was a lot of encountering the East yeah. there for a few years. But anyway, my biggest surprise mm. was I got towards the end of the book and I was reading some of the things he was saying about technology. And I was like, what? who does this remind me? And I was like, this sounds like the Unabomber mon- manifesto. I was thinking that too. And I was, li- I was thinking the and exact I was like, same the Unabomber thing. was from Montana. Right. And I was like, okay, all right. So I looked it up and I was like, Zen and the Art of mo- Motorcycle Maintenance and Unabomber. Unabomber uh-huh. Just two queries. I didn't do and that. And I came up, some guy wrote a paper 
at, from University of Montana, comparing the two, the manifesto and this book, and like finding all kinds of parallels between yeah. them. And he says at the beginning, he says, the parallels were so strong that at one point, Robert Persig was a suspect to be the Unabomber. Wow. The FBI actually looked into him on the list of the people they thought might be the Unabomber. Wow. And I was like, okay, so I'm not crazy. So the Unabomber was a professor. Where was he a professor at? That's a good question. I don't think I know. Like you, I think my, it was a maybe an Ivy, though. Like Berkeley or something, yeah, wasn't it? maybe it was. Maybe not an Ivy, but yeah, something like yeah. that. But he, he I, might that, be, I might be remembering that So that guy wrong, went but. through a bunch of LSD studies as a student at, I believe, Harvard or Yale. Ted Kaczynski did? Yeah. Okay. He was part of uh, this um, government-funded LSD studies where they okay. fed him a ton of LSD to see what would happen. Wow. And most people speculate that's pretty much what happened to him. You know, that was a lot of hyper intelligent yeah. people go that way though. Yeah. Their, their minds break. That's yeah. not, you don't need LSD to do it to you. It I think it could help push. It could. It? Yeah, it you certainly know? isn't going to help. Come it, to a lot of conclusions that you probably wouldn't otherwise come Although to. they actually prescribe psychedelics to treat mental illness. Yeah, more, but that, more those the are, but that's like days, the, so. that's like the, what do they call it? The microdosing. Yeah, yeah microdosing. Yeah. So. so, so I think we've come down to it. As long as we're good on time, I think we've come down to the point where we have to decide whether we're toasting or not. It's tough. It's you. It's all you. It's really tough. Yeah. It's really tough. Would I give this book to somebody and uh, recommend that they read it? You'd have to really like them. <laughs> it's a long book. It was a big influence on me when I read it at first um, because I was just – I think I was just going through a phase of road trip books were like mm -hmm. what I was all about. And I think I probably kind of skimmed some of the philosophical stuff if I didn't think much of it. Mm -hmm. I don't remember understanding what happened at the end when I read it when I was a kid. I don't know. As a piece of the intellectual tradition and understanding what was going on in America in the 1970s, it would be pretty important. But we're fading pretty far from the 1970s. And right. I don't know how important that is to understand that particular time period, except for people like us that were alive then. Sure. It's rough. I, I don't think I would toast it. Yeah, I agree. You I'm think? on board. Yeah, I'm on board. Yeah, I don't mean to, like, put it down. I mean, I just... Because I'm glad I read it. Yeah, I, I, it's a great book to read for this. But I think it was. A, show. I think it was a um, book in its time. I mean, that's the thing. Is yeah, it, maybe it, a bit it, too much. It was a classic yeah. in its own time, mm -hmm. and I think that I think you know, it's a little pretentious, is what I find off-putting. Well, it's it's pretentious now. It's, I think or, I think or, it was. I think not, it was, not, it's he and he mentions this. Mm -hmm. he, he calls himself out for this. It's megalomaniacal. Yeah. Is what it is. He's like he thinks he's so important and his right. ideas are so important. And I'm like, no, your ideas are not that important. Pay attention to your kid. Right. Like, you're right. really right. doing a lot more damage to the yeah. world by screwing your kid up. Yeah. Than you would. Although you know. parenting, I mean, you know, latchkey oh, there's kids. No guarantees. Latchkey no kids guarantees. were a thing back then. I mean, yes. you know, parenting yeah. was a lot different. But I mean. Yeah. I, I, you know, I would agree with you. I think that in its time, it was a really important book. Yeah. Uh, it was a classic. But the problem is it it's, it's hinges on its philosophical novelism, meaning or uniqueness perhaps mm. or whatever you want to call it. And it was at a time when people generally weren't exposed to a lot yeah, of that. I think so. But, but I think we are much more today. Yeah, and, like and I don't really find a lot of novelism here. Yeah, exactly. I'm just seeing right, the same right. things people. I'm exactly. seeing him just recapitulate. And not only not only that, said. we've we've grown beyond because the the you know mysticism of the East and the philosophy of the East was was fairly exotic. Exotic, right? But we've we've grown now to there's so much more out there that we're looking right. at and and uh, realizing how substantial you know these other um, or different cultures and and. Um, and their philosophies and their beliefs and so forth are and how they influence things and have influenced things. I think so, for a very young person to pick this book up and read it and to get some ideas about some things you might want to look into wouldn't still yeah. be a bad. I think it might you, that still might be fruitful, mm -hmm. you know, to just be like, oh, I should look up what Zen is. I should look up what right. the Tao is, you know. But mm -hmm. then again, I, I think people are getting exposed. Like you said, they're getting exposed to these ideas. Yeah. 
it's a lot easier to be exposed to these ideas Absolutely. than it used to be. You didn't yeah. need this one book to sort of turn you on to a bunch right. of stuff. You just kind of, I don't know. All right. Well, well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, we, I don't uh, think we're doing uh, it. Have a shocker. We're not, we're not toasting this classic. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for joining us, and uh, we will be talking at you next time when we are going to talk about... Uh, what are we doing? Oh, we are going to be going with the season, uh-huh. and the next thing is a movie, and it's a classic, purported classic of it, uh, horror. Dave's pick here. Called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, which can't wait. I just would have thought was garbage, honestly. Yeah. But growing up just hearing that name, I was like, oh, that's not. But everybody says it's actually a really good movie, so. Well, we will I'm find down. out. I'm down to we'll watch it. We'll find out. So All right. Do it. So join us next time on Toasting the Classics, where we're going to talk about uh, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's right. Couple weeks before Halloween or a week before Halloween, something like that. Something like that, yeah. For uh, Toast of the Classics, this is uh, Clint Lanier, Dave MacArthur, and we are out. Peace out. Bye. That's it for episode 28 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, get some Lone Star beer for our discussion of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and your own tortured definition of quality. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. <laughs> <laughs>